Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Theopolis podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we are joined again by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John as we start to wind up our look at the Epistle of James. And today, we're going to be looking at chapter 5, starting in verse 7. And verses 7 and 8 say this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So James, again, is looking to encourage his hearers, these persecuted Jewish Christians, to be patient uh, for the coming of the Lord, because it is uh, then that their oppressors will be brought to some kind of justice. Um, but this is not a new theme, as we've seen in the book of James. This this has been a big theme in the book as a whole. You know, how else are these Christians going to be joyful in the midst of sufferings without patience? How else are they going to deal with um, anger and covetousness, desiring what others uh, maybe even the wicked desiring what the wicked have how are they going to do that without patience and even in chapter three you can't tame the tongue without patience but essential to the the calling to be patient here is the coming of the lord so i know we've mentioned this in previous episodes but what is this coming of the lord here it seems like it's something that's right around the corner or is this a call um you know, as I've been taught most of my life, is this a call to a, a generic uh, day of the Lord in an unknown future that's far, far off that seemingly never comes? Um, what is the day of the Lord here, the coming of the Lord? Well, in context, it's the coming and judgment of the Lord of hosts back in verse four. It's the coming of the Lord that Jesus promised in Matthew 24, not a coming at the end of history or the last day not his final bodily return at the end of uh, end of the world, but this is something that's near, at hand. Establish your hearts, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is near. Okay, it's at hand. Uh, that can only be a comfort to these folks because they're enmeshed in the uh, the suffering, the persecution, uh, and they, they want to be delivered from it. That's I, I, that's the whole context of James. Okay, it started back in chapter one. You're 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 being tested. You're being tried. Uh, you need to recognize that this is for your good. You need to wait, um, and the Lord is going to come, and He's going to do for you what you think you need to do for yourself. Um, you mm-hmm. just need to you just need to be patient and wait for Him to vindicate you and to judge your enemies. Yeah, and just to build on that, Jeff, and I'm, I'm rewinding a, a little bit here, but I'm struck by the way in which at the um, outset of Chapter 5, um, James's prophecy just builds on and brings together so many allusions from and, and strands from both Old Testament prophecy and, and even perhaps from uh, Revelation. And, and so kind of think of the first few verses, you know, come now, you rich, weep and... and how your riches have rotted, your gold and silver corroded, and and, and so forth. Um, I've been going through Zephaniah recently, and and we get so many of the themes there. I'm just reading from verse seven: the day of the Lord is uh, 
is near. Um, I will punish the officials and the king's son to array themselves in, in foreign attire or unknown um, attire. Um, whale are inhabitants of, of the mortar. So there, there's sort of a call for weeping and uh, mourning. Uh, all the traders and no more. All who weigh out silver um, will be cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Then it goes on towards the end of um, uh, chapter one. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his, his jealousy. So there seems to be a, a load of that sort of brought into James's um, flow and, and build up here. And I'm very struck by this um, phrase here in verse three, your gold and silver have corroded. Uh, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And um, here I'm, reminded very much of um revelation 17 um towards the the close there when, when the um uh, the prostitute has been on this beast and 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 guiding it to some extent using its power for her benefit but it says those horns they will turn against the prostitute um they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up um with fire for god has put it into their hearts to do so. And I, I take at least a near application of, of that prostitute to be the unregenerate um, uh, Jewish rulers. And they've been kind of riding that beast, you know, using Roman power as you go through uh, the book of Acts, using Roman power to um, drive out Paul and to stir up the Romans um, against the apostles and, and, and so forth. And yet that, beast now is going to turn against her um in the last days and as it says here devour her flesh and burn her up with fire and there's loads more of that going on in these uh verses from james the idea of fattening your hearts very much i think has to do with um uh ezekiel 34 and and the way the shepherds have fattened themselves and scattered um the sheep and god says i will um be a, sh uh, a shepherd and will destroy the fat and and, and the rich and so on and I just feel that in um, uh, a lot of this, James is drawing on all this prophetic imagery, and I'm sure part of that is 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 to make allusions to specific prophecies. But I think also part of it is just to show the way in which these days of the Lord that come and and pass in history have this kind of cyclic um, nature to them. There, there are just these big climactic. Um, moments where gold and silver becomes worthless and the richer um, are judged and, and, and things are put right. And besides these more general patterns or these climactic patterns that we see in history when the Lord judges the evildoers, we also see these more general patterns witnessed within places like Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And then going on, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And um, 
Alistair, that idea of kind of looking um, for the wicked and he'll be no more. I think later on in verse 37, uh, chapter 37, there's the idea of a, a ruthless man who uh, spreads himself out like a green laurel tree or something. And, and then in the morning um, he's gone, which is um, either from Job or Job is from uh, the psalm. And it, it then strikes me as significant that um, James is, is drawing heavily on, on Job um, as he comes to the um, climax of his writings here. In, in the commentary, I've, I talk about this uh, patience as a virtue and how many times in our lives we've been asked to be patient, to wait. And we've told our children, you know, wait, be patient, just take your turn. And there's basically three conditions. If you're going to be patient, you need to know three things. One is you got to trust the one who's asking you to wait. Okay. That whatever you're hoping for, uh, the person who's telling you to wait for it is trustworthy. And then two, you got to believe it's not going to be too long or so long that the wait isn't worth your time. And then third, you got to be able to behave yourself during the, during the time uh, between the promise and the reception. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you don't behave yourself, you'll forfeit the right to whatever it is you're waiting for. Um, this kind of sums up all of James in some sense, James, mm -hmm wants his people to be patient. So they have to trust that the Lord is on their side and will vindicate them in due time. Okay. But the time's not going to be too long because if it's too long, it doesn't make any sense. So he's got, he's got to tell them it's near. It's not far off. Okay. Um, if you tell your child to wait, to play with a toy because some other sibling is playing with it, um, then they're going to trust mom will eventually give them a crack at it um, and not, not next year, but maybe in 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and so it's got to be near as in James says it is, and then they got to behave. Uh, and if they misbehave, they might become part of the judgment and not receive what they want. Um, and James also says that in verse nine, don't grumble against one another, brothers. That's picking up on what he said in, chapter four, uh, don't grumble against, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Another reference to a near coming of the Lord in judgment. Yeah, I like that. Surprised, I should say, at that mention of Job um, there in verse 11, because I think about Job a lot at the beginning of chapter five, um, when it's talking about what's going to happen with the wicked, you know, uh, with the rich, the rich, there's Job, weeping and howling, there's Job, the miseries that have come upon him, there's Job, the riches have rotted and his garments are moth-eaten, his skin is being eaten up like flesh. These things make me think of Job, and yet it's talking about what's going to come upon their oppressors. And uh, you know, there is this biblical principle of, do you want to die? You'd rather die now and suffer now than die later and suffer later. And you'd rather be patient and suffer under oppression now than be the one with treasure on earth, uh, oppressing who's going to suffer forever and will weep and howl forever. And so I, I love that mention of Job there in verse 11, because it's, it so reminds me of the language earlier in the chapter, and, and yet it's reversed. You want to be like Job, who, who does not escape suffering, who goes through unbelievable suffering, and yet uh, is patient and therefore reaps the reward. And in the story of Job, one of the key issues is his need for vindication. 
it seems that all the fingers are pointing at Job, the fingers of his people, the fingers of his wife and his family, and then most importantly, the finger of God himself, pointing at this man, saying he's obviously to blame. The power of God himself has come down upon Job's property. And so it seems that he's not just lacking in vindication and experiencing suffering. He's been explicitly, or it looks like he's been explicitly condemned. And in the same way, you might think about the Christians receiving this letter and thinking about their fate. They're scattered. They've had family members who've been killed and members of their church that have been, their pastor has been taken away and put in prison. Or they're facing um, harsh legal sanctions, whatever it is. All the signs look to be against them. They seem to be the ones on the wrong side of history. They seem to be the ones who are the losing um, party. And the more that you get focused upon that particular situation and its immediate horizons, the more you will feel that rankling sense of injustice and that need to take matters into your own hand, to take the law into your own hand and act through zeal to set things right. And yet James's counsel is to wait, like Job, for this dramatic event of divine vindication. And that vindication will confound the adversaries. It will vindicate the people. It will avenge their blood. And it will set things to rights. Now, at that point, it's something on the historical horizon near at hand. Um, that's not necessarily always going to be the case for us in our particular struggles. But that confidence that the Lord will set things right, that wrongs will not go unavenged, that the faithful people of the Lord can persist in prayer against um, the wrongs of their day um, for vindication, like the persistent widow, and be sure that these things will be set right, that their sufferings will not be forgotten, that their blood will not be unavenged, and that the Lord will not allow wrong finally to prevail. All of these sorts of things can draw great confidence from the story of Job, where against all appearances, Job is the righteous one, and the book ends with a great reversal. Yeah, and included in that, is the pro the prophets just a general statement in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the lord and the prophets also were those who uh were generally speaking ostracized and belittled and not listened to and in some cases exiled or thrown into pits and yet they were in the right, and eventually they were vindicated. Uh, they are examples of suffering and patience. Remember back in Matthew 23, when Jesus condemns the leaders of the Jews and says, you know, you, you um, are the sons of your, of your uh, fathers. Let's see, how, how did that go exactly? Um, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he says that he's going to send out prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them they will kill and crucify and flog in their synagogues and persecute from town to town 
so that on you may come all the righteous blood that is shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary. All these things will come upon this generation. Um, and that's that's behind James's exhortation to them to be patient. Uh, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's for sure. Um, and so you are like the prophets. You are like Job. Yes, you've been dispossessed. Yes, you've been um, stripped of much of your wealth and your well-being and your business in Jerusalem and sent packing. And you seem to be, as Elser said, you seem to be the one who's unrighteous, as all of as Job's three counselors, his three friends told him, you, you've done something wrong. Confess your sin. You're 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 suffering because of God's judgment. And yet he's not. And neither are these Christians. Uh, again, if they behave, <laughs> if they're patient, um, if they don't turn into the same sorts of scoundrels that their oppressors are by becoming aggressive and zealots and fighting back, uh, they need to be patient. Yeah. And that idea of, of being patient is, is very, I know we've said it already, but very clearly bound up with, with the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And I'm intrigued by this image of a coming harvest, which comes you know, after sowing and then after the early and, and the late rains comes to full fruition, just because th there's nothing kind of extraordinary in a sense about when the harvest arrives. It's just part of the normal um, circuit and cycle of things. And it just requires us to get on with the normal tasks and in large part just to wait. And I just feel like there's a, a parallel with that in terms of god has built into the universe all sorts of ways in which just wickedness and decadence and evil doesn't ultimately flourish um, things like all sorts of sexual perversity and a lack of authority and duty and, and and discipline it just ultimately won't create a flourishing um society it, it will be in fertile literally in in infertile it, it won't uh be productive or anything along those lines and in asking god to um bring regimes like like that down i don't mean to be saying that god isn't doing anything extraordinary because he is and god is in uh, all things and, and working all things uh like that to his purpose but at the same time it is just part of of the cycle and the the kind of natural um things that god has built into our universe and and looking at history in that light i think it can give us um confidence because god has intervened and and brought to an end so much wickedness um and and persecution in, in the past and it is just part of that farmer um, waiting for, for, for the normal course of events to, to go full cycle. Yeah. Uh, remember, too, that this is what they're waiting for. This is what the uh, well, they're either waiting for. They're trying to implement it through their own anger, uh, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. And at the end of chapter three, uh, a harvest of righteousness. Well, that harvest of righteousness comes through rather ordinary means, as you just said, James, that's an excellent point. 
The wisdom from above is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. Uh, wow. Those who sow in peace will make peace. And that's where the harvest comes, not through these extraordinary ways, especially these violent ways, which, which they have been engaged in. Alistair has an excellent uh, little piece in the, in the conversation on James on the Theopolis website, just about uh, this kind of imagery in the book of James, how small, seemingly insignificant things eventually have a huge impact. Maybe he'd comment on that. Yes, one of the things I was trying to get a, across is that so often when we face these struggles and op forms of opposition, we go into panic and anxiety mode. And yet what's encouraged here is just the patient work of the farmer who is not panicking, who's just, who trusts to the pattern of things that has been established, the deeper pattern of the natural order. And as Christians, we're supposed to trust ourselves to the pattern of the Lord's actions. We're supposed to understand the relationship between natures and fruits. We're supposed to understand the way that actions lead to consequences, what you sow and what you will reap. We're supposed to wait for the appropriate times for, for things. Don't try and divide things now, as in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Divide them at the appropriate time, and you can wait until then. There's no need to be living in a constant state of panic. And the fact that James brings these examples of suffering prophets and faithful farmers to these people, rather than the examples that we might think of. You're in a culture war. You need these examples of warriors. It should surprise us. And I think that surprise is part of the message that um, ultimately it will be through our confident commitment to the standard practices of Christian peacemaking that will tide us through, not actions that treat every single situation as an emergency one in which to suspend normal operations and get down to the task of fighting rather than actually just plowing and sowing and watering, praying for the rains and then preparing for the harvest. Yes, it, and it's exactly that temptation, exactly that um, that anxiety leads us to want to do things now, to want to uh, act in inappropriate ways. It's exactly that I th that I think explains then verse 12, because everybody comes to this verse and they're like, what is this about? But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or earth or any other oath or let your yes be yes, you no know be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I mean, at first glance, that placement with the exhortation following the exhortation of patience seems confusing. But I think if you consider the reality in the ancient world that when men banded together to form a violent or a political conspiracy, especially against an oppressive government or oppressive leader, they came together and swore oaths. And they swore oaths forming this underground resistance party. And apparently this was quite common in first century Judaism. It's precisely what the Jewish zealot was, someone who had sworn an oath to cripple Rome's power, you know, over the Jews. So Simon, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, called a zealot, probably because he was recruited from the ranks of zealotry. So prohibiting readers from swearing oaths 
and this is my take on it, it may not be entirely right, but it's, it seems to me to fit, is, is, is saying don't, don't establish or join resistant movements against your oppressors. Okay. And we have this kind of thing in, even in the book of Acts. We have an example, remember, in Acts 23, um, when Paul had been arrested and appeared before the Jewish Sanhedrin and a band of zealous Jews approved by the council, approved by the Jewish Sanhedrin. So you see how widespread this is in Israel. They all swore an oath to kill Paul. Remember, they said that they're not going to eat until they had assassinated Paul. That's in uh, Acts 23. And so I think from all accounts we read about first century Judaism and their relationship to Rome, especially this kind of oath taking by bands of zealous men was common among resistance fighters. So it, it wouldn't be surprising that that kind of tactic would be repurposed by the Christians um, to eliminate their oppressors. Um, and if it was that common among the Jews, and if these are Jewish Christians who've been exiled from Jerusalem and have been schooled in, in this mindset, this is just all around them, they were tempted to use similar tactics. And that's not, that's not the way to do it. You will come under the same condemnation as your oppressors if you do this. Now, I don't want you guys to think of that, but I think that at least makes some sense of the inclusion of this warning against swearing and oath-taking here in chapter five. I think that makes a lot of sense of it. Um, I've not encountered that reading before. Something I'd be, I'd be keen to discuss is, um, suppose we're preaching through the book of James. You know, it, it feels like there are a lot of um, quite what would I call them, quite context-driven uh, applications that we can make, such as what you were saying, Jeff, about um, swearing uh, and oath-taking. Um, and yet, at the same time, verse 12 does seem to have a, a plain sense where what is uh, what the oath is about um, doesn't necessarily seem to be wrong, but it's just saying rather than binding yourself by um, an oath, just let your word count for itself. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And possibly the same was true at the end of chapter four, where um, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make profit, etc. cetera, um, where there might not be anything wrong with that um, per se, but it can be done in a, in a wrong spirit. And, you know, there's a particular call against uh uh, being driven by lusts and desires here. And I think contextually, there's a big problem uh, with anger and vengeance. Um, and yet, surely the Lord can use these things to speak about sexual lust and the way that can uh, give birth to sin and sin when it's full grown uh, to bring forth death. And um, so I just wanted to sort of raise the um, issues of kind of Preaching through this, how how might we handle that? Do we do we um, start with uh, a context uh, a context read uh, uh, interpretation of the text, and then uh, generalize to other applications? Do we think those more general ones are just invalid in in, in the first place? I'd be I'd be keen to know what you think about that. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but we do have to explain context uh, first and then make general applications. I mean, for example, I'm in preaching in Hebrews right now and just uh, finishing up the first half of chapter 10, but all the way from chapter eight. Wow. I mean, this is this I'm sure made a lot of sense to people living in the first century when there was still a lot of sacrifices and blood and and all the rest. But a lot of it to you have to bring the modern reader into it before you can draw applications, because so much of Hebrews is about that old arrangement, the old covenant, the old sacrificial system uh, and how it worked and how it doesn't work anymore and how it didn't even work at the time. The blood of bulls and goats could never. It was impossible. They take away sin. What does that mean? Uh, um, so, um, I think in any, in any, uh, situation where you're preaching or teaching, you have to bring people through the historical context first, and then that helps you draw general applications. So your, your general applications, James, I, I don't have any problem with. Um, but apart from that, if you don't take in the context, for example, in verse 12 here, um, if you don't, then that becomes an absolute prohibition against all swearing and oath-taking, which we know can't be the case, because the rest of Scripture has uh, people taking oaths and swearing all the time. Even Jesus saying, amen, amen, is something of a covenantal oath. Um, so, I mean, so I, I think the context keeps us from making inappropriate, overly broad, blanket uh statements about what we can and can't do part of the challenge i imagine is squaring this with jesus um we have to relate this also to jesus teaching concerning oaths in chapter five of matthew and the sermon on the mount where he also seems to make a categorical against oaths the statement where he says um you've heard that it was said to those of old, do, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And somehow I think we need to factor that in. And I'm not sure that, that can be explained by the taking oaths in that more specialized sense of getting involved in zealotry. Something of the context of the judge being at the door, I think, might be at issue here. And also within Matthew, we see the way that people were using these oaths as a way to give weight to speech that was deceptive and so if you swear by this it counts if it you can almost cross your fingers verbally to ensure that you don't get held accountable to your words that's a way of taking the names the lord's name in vain and so the way to avoid it is just to avoid oaths altogether because people are always invoking god's weight and authority to give weight to words that lack that weight and it's precisely because their words are untruthful and deceitful that they're constantly appealing to the Lord. And I think many of us have had this experience dealing with people who are deeply deceptive. And I mean, the experience of dealing with um, drug addicts in the past was illuminating to me on this front. They constantly resort to making these most elaborate oaths because swearing on their children's lives, on their mother's graves, on 
this, that, and the other, because no one could trust them anymore. And yet even their great oaths would turn out to be false. And so when the judge is standing at the door, you are very, very careful about taking the law into your own hands, as in the case of um, actions of zealotry. You're also very careful about invoking his name because he's just there and he's about to bring his um, judgment down. And if you invoke him and his authority in that situation, you are putting yourself up for judgment as well. Yeah, I like that. That's that's a really good, helpful application, especially referring back to the Sermon on the Mount. This question about lawful oaths and vows is uh, very complicated. We got, we have a whole chapter, uh, chapter twenty-two in the Westminster Confession of Faith, with uh, seven different paragraphs about you know what this means, uh, trying to draw together in some systematic way what all of Scripture says about vows and oaths. But Alistair, I think your point, your points were really good and helpful as an application, even of verse 12 in chapter 5. Yeah. And uh, Alistair, there, there, there seems to be a, a parallel between Jesus and uh, James's teaching insofar as in Matthew, um, the, the statement is, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, uh, as in you, you're kind of promising, guaranteeing things sort of beyond your means to fulfill and that seems to be uh present in some of james's teaching uh, at least you know come now you who say today or tomorrow we will do this um yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring for for what is your life and it, it seems uh, a very similar mindset that can make all these promises about things that are just beyond our ability to fulfill yes that's a very helpful point um, the sense of divine judgment and divine providence, I think, really go together to give a context within which James's statement carries its full force. And there it seems to then come back to Jeff's point that the um, inverse of taking oaths and, and trying to take matters into our own hands is that that patient waiting, that, that rather unglamorous um, sewing and, and getting about feeling normal Christian duties. My think of the example of Paul in Acts 23 and the people who take a vow to kill him um, and they promised not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. What do they do with that vow? Um, they've made a very solemn oath and now they're caught not being able to eat and drink. I like the idea of closing with a question of what are those guys up to now? <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.